This is the Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, an internal medicine physician at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We are all in the midst of the COVID crisis, but caught in the COVID crisis is a whole number of women who are pregnant. And as we know, every year in US alone, there are hundreds and thousands of women who are pregnant, but this is a very difficult and different situation. Today, we are joined over the podcast by Dr. Regan Tyler, who's a chair of obstetrics and gynecology and associate professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We're going to focus on three primary things. One is about the mother and then the baby or the fetus and the risk to the caregivers. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Tyler. Thanks for having me. So this is very strange. I mean, since the first, we had the first case somewhere in the first, uh, uh, in January 2020 in US alone, we have a lot of women who were pregnant and found themselves in this situation. How big is this issue among our pregnant patients, patients in US? If you're one of those pregnant patients, it's a really big issue, right? It's, it's a huge concern for our patients. It's also a concern for us in practice because we just don't know quite enough to give great advice to our pregnant women. So we're, we're treating pregnant women at this point much like we treat other patients as far as our advice goes. Um, but given their level of concern for their babies and themselves, sometimes that's not quite as much advice as they're looking for from us. So at this point, from the three months of experience that we have, and I understand women are in different uh, trimesters, there are women who find themselves in the third trimester versus there are many others who are in the first or second trimester. But does pregnancy itself make a woman more susceptible, more than normal, normal person susceptible to COVID-19 or are the risks the same? So far as we know right now, the risks are the same for acquiring the virus. We don't have any data or any, any epidemiologic signal to suggest that a pregnant woman is more likely to get the virus or more likely to get sick than a similar non-pregnant woman would be. That's great. So I want to take you to a scenario. I want to advise on that about a woman who's in a third trimester. What kind of instructions are you giving to pregnant ladies who are coming to you who are in the third trimester versus who have a longer way to go in the first and second trimesters? Are they the same kind of, of course, you, we have um, the hand sanitizers and the social distancing and the masking, but is there something else uh, women in the third trimester need to know at the present moment? At the present moment, our advice is really the same. We just don't have anything different that we can do to help pregnant women in the third trimester avoid the infection. So it's exactly the same. It's masking, it's avoiding cases if you possibly can. You know, more social distancing as strict as you possibly can be is good advice, but not everybody can social distance the way we ideally would want. So from, from the number of cases that have either delivered or uh, in, the, in the last phase a few weeks or or what we know from the literature, are the pregnant women who are in the third trimester or and earlier on, are they at risk for preeclampsia, any preterm delivery or any increase in cesarean sections 
other than over and above of what they would have normally have had risk in normal cases? So those things are really concerning. And we do have some preliminary studies, small observational cohorts, mostly out of China, suggesting that pregnant women may, may be at an increased risk of preeclampsia if they are infected with COVID. So compared to the uninfected control, it seems like that rate is higher. The same seems to be true of preterm labor, although with preterm labor, it's always complicated because you have to parse out which of the preterm births we're seeing are due to increased morbidity from the infection, increased morbidity from a higher rate of preeclampsia, and which of those are just spontaneous preterm labor. And I don't think we have the answer to that yet. The overlying trends, though, do suggest that preterm birth is increased in patients with COVID and that the severity of the illness may be related to the rates of preterm birth. Uh, I want to take you to a couple of scenarios and how you would react if, if a woman is in her first and second trimester and gets the COVID and gets short of breath versus a woman who's in a third trimester and gets a COVID pneumonia or short of breath. What are the recommendations for x-rays and exposure to radiations? And what are we telling the patients and how are we monitoring them? It's a really good question. You know, in, in pregnancy in general, we avoid radiation when it's prudent to do so and it's feasible to do so. We go for the lower dose radiation when possible. So for instance, in someone early in pregnancy, I would lean toward doing a chest X-ray, PA and lateral before a CT scan. Whereas if that were a non-pregnant woman, CT scan would be the gold standard in someone who's presenting with likely bilateral COVID pneumonia. You know, the, the dose increase with the CT scan is concerning to us. We, of course, when we feel it's truly indicated that we need the CT scan, we will do that and we will shield the woman's belly. But in general, the severity of COVID pneumonia is such that we think you can diagnose it reasonably well with a regular chest X-ray, and that would be the best way to go for these pregnant patients. In third trimester, if they come to you in third trimester, is the risk there at all for exposure to radiation? Even if it's small, it may still be there? The risk is lower. So the further along you go in pregnancy, the lower the risk for you know, somatic mutations, anything that will put them at risk for uh, a childhood cancer, which is really what we're thinking about in these babies um, in, as far as fetal exposure goes. So in the third trimester, if we feel we need a CT scan, we're less hesitant to do it, um, but the safety data is not significantly different as far as I'm aware. I understand the complexity of prenatal monitoring will vary about on how the mother's condition is, but at this time, if, if somebody is uh, asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, with a COVID illness, would the prenatal monitoring be any different from, from um, normal pregnant women as opposed to somebody who's really in the ICU or, or in, a, uh, in a much more riskier situation as a moderately severe COVID infection? And there the pre prenatal monitoring, I can understand, will be much more um, vigilant and, and, and you're going to monitor them very, very cautiously and frequently. But what about the women who are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic? Is there any difference in prenatal monitoring in these cases that you would follow? You know, 
there, there is a recommendation from the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, I think it's a prudent one, that if we have a patient who has asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic COVID in the first or second trimester, and she recovers from that infection, such that she's asymptomatic, she's swab negative, that we still would recommend getting growth ultrasounds at least one time in the third trimester of pregnancy. The reason for that is we have conflicting data and not much of it about whether this virus can impact placental development and implantation. The impact of any insult to the placenta early in pregnancy can result in decreased growth, can result in things like increased rates of preeclampsia. So we do wanna keep a closer eye on those women, but again, the, the data is sparse. So it's a, it's a recommendation out of an abundance of precautions. As far as doing more aggressive antenatal testing, so biophysical profiles or NSTs weekly in these patients once they've recovered, we don't have a recommendation for that. And that would have to be individualized based on the patient's other comorbidities. Right. So my question, uh, next question would be, which are the subgroups of pregnant women with COVID-19 where you would recommend early delivery? The early delivery in these patients, you know, we're talking about iatrogenic early delivery, so we, we make a decision to do a C-section or an induction of labor, would be based solely on the, the condition of the mother, un unless we saw some signs of fetal distress, okay? So usually those patients are going to be sick patients with preeclampsia, sick patients who are in the ICU with COVID pneumonia where they're having hypoxia, they're having fetal implications of that hypoxia, but also we have to think about would the mother's pulmonary condition, would her tidal volumes, would her, um, her lung function improve if we remove the pregnancy from her uterus? So that comes into play with some of these patients who are very sick. So it's, it's a combination decision at that point. So it's not only those who are very sick, but also preeclampsia and many other maternal things which you have determined even before uh, the COVID-19 from the patient's habitus or prior history and many things go, or, or if they have other comorbid uh, chronic diseases going on. So looks like there's a lot going on and you have to be extremely busy as a, of tradition to keep an eye on so many different things. And that is, that's interesting. So when the patient gets to the point, you've decided the patient needs a C-section, given all that we know about aerosolization and the risk of intubation and other things, are you preferring uh, like a spinal anesthesia over a general anesthesia? What kind of decisions go into an obstetrician's mind at that time? So we've worked really closely with our obstetric anesthesiologists and the Society of Obstetric Anesthesiology has recommendations on this um, that are pretty clear. So we prefer a regional anesthetic whenever possible in these patients. So only under the most dire of emergency circumstances would we recommend a general anesthesia for these patients. So for instance, if the patient is already intubated, then obviously general anesthesia would be indicated. Otherwise, we're really recommending that, that these patients, even if they appear to be doing relatively well early in labor, that they get an epidural and they get it as soon as feasible because that epidural can then be used as surgical dosing to do a cesarean delivery if needed and avoid the aerosolizing procedures uh, and the intubation. That's great. So now I'm, I'm, I'm coming to the, to the newborn. 
is there any risk for acquiring the infection for the newborn who are born to mothers with COVID-19 um, due to exposure of the amniotic fluid or vaginal secretion during a vaginal delivery? So that's a really hot topic. And we don't have the answer to that. So to me, as an obstetrician and a virologist, that's the fascinating question here. We have a few case reports of babies who are born to COVID-infected sick mothers who, when the baby is separated from the mother at birth and strictly isolated and then swabs positive at you know, 12 days of, or 12 uh, hours of life, 48 hours of life, um, either anorectal positive or pharyngeal positive on PCR, suggesting that it may be transmissible. Now, having said that, we don't know if that's a transplacental route, if, as you said, that would be a, a vaginal exposure route, or if those are somehow contaminants or false positives, because the number of cases we have is very, very low. It has not been systematically investigated. You know, this, this disease affects pregnant women the way it affects everybody else. We know how overwhelmed our healthcare systems are. So the opportunity to systematically investigate that by testing the placenta, testing the amniotic fluid, testing the vaginal secretions of these women has just really not been there. And you mentioned separating the baby for a period of time from a COVID positive mother. What about uh, breastfeeding and uh, bonding? Uh, what, what kind of, I, I know there are other situations where the mothers need to be separated from the children who are premature and have to be in the ICU. What kind of recommendations are you following now for these patients? This is a really tough issue. You know, if mom is very ill and in the ICU, it's an easy decision. The baby needs to go to the nursery. If the baby is preterm or very ill, it's an easier decision. The baby needs to go to the nursery. In these patients who are full term, feeling relatively well, who have a baby that's, that's vigorous and appears normal, to separate that baby from the mother may cause more harm than good. And we don't really know the answer to that. So the, the CDC has sort of conflicting recommendations on this. And we have chosen at Mayo Clinic to go the route of offering the patient the best evidence we have and giving her the choice as long as the baby is doing well and would be a candidate for skin-to-skin -skin bonding, for breastfeeding, for rooming in. We have evidence from just a couple of cases that there does not seem to be COVID in breast milk by PCR testing. Um, we know from years and years of experience that the benefit to the baby of rooming in and doing the bonding with the mom and doing feeding at the breast and skin to skin initially is so beneficial for that maternal neonatal relationship, for establishing breastfeeding, and even for neurologic development of babies. There's, there's some good data on that. So right now we are counseling these moms about good hand washing, about wearing masks when they're in the room with their baby, um, as long as their PCR is still positive, and giving them that option. If, if they really want to avoid any chance of infection for that baby, uh, they can choose to avoid delayed cord clamping, to wear a mask during delivery, and have the baby immediately removed from the room. I can tell you anecdotally that very few of our mothers are choosing that um, for, for reasons that are completely understandable. We hear about so many different medicines like hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, and a whole bunch of other antivirals. Uh, number one, what is the effect on the mother 
And number two, what is the effect on the babies? Because pregnancy is that holy ground where we try to avoid any medicines or most, most of the medicines we have, let's, have not studied or we don't know the risks of it. So what, are we, what is our recommendation now for these women um, who are in the third trimesters and infected and what, what are the kind of a shared decision-making talk we are having with them? Yeah, so we, we would limit those medications, of course, to women who were severely symptomatic or we felt were in danger of deterioration from their COVID disease. But we do have a couple of decades of experience in rheumatologic diseases with hydroxychloroquine. And we have a pretty good safety record on that. We don't have any evidence over all these years that it's had adverse effects on the baby. And we know it's been pretty effective in mothers in terms of treating lupus, in terms of treating rheumatoid arthritis. So we're lucky in that way that the medication that's most commonly being given is when we have a fair amount of experience with in pregnancy and other antivirals we don't necessarily have that much experience with. As far as the azithromycin goes, I would say similarly, you know, that's an antibiotic that we have a fair amount of experience with in pregnancy, um, largely because it's used to treat other things like sexually transmitted infections for which we, we have over the years decided that the benefit outweighs the risk of azithromycin. So for both of those medications, you know, even though we're going away from FDA category labeling, I would say from an obstetric standpoint, we feel comfortable giving those medications to pregnant women uh, when indicated. Dr. Tyler, can you comment on the PPE used by our healthcare providers? What is the current situation and recommendations? So right now, recommendations from the CDC are that a surgical mask for providers seems to be adequate during labor and delivery. However, there, there's conflicting opinions coming from our professional societies, including the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, suggesting that pushing during the second stage of labor with forcible inhalations, exhalations, vocalizations, is likely to be a low-risk aerosolizing phenomenon and probably 75 to 80% of our health systems that, that we speak to are using N95 masks during the second stage of labor for protection of healthcare providers. The use of an N95 also protects the obstetricians and the nurses from the aerosolization that can occur during neonatal resuscitation with positive pressure ventilation of the baby, uh, or if there's any need for oxygenation of the mother uh, during that time. So I would say most of us have gone to N95 use during the second stage of labor. The last question which I have for you is just the PPE use and remote monitoring. Uh, have the new systems with technology, AI, telehealth, is it helping us monitor a whole number of pregnant women during this period in, by remote monitoring? And when they come here, how, how heavy is the PPE use you've seen among your colleagues? So it is helping us considerably with our remote monitoring uh, systems that we already had set up. So we have some experience with a program called OB Nest where we do fewer visits for pregnant women during routine prenatal care, as long as those women are low risk. So we've already started a program of having nursing remote visits and we've added provider remote visits so that we really are keeping healthy pregnant women out of the healthcare setting 
as much as we can. So we're bringing them an average of four to five times during a normal pregnancy uh, to keep them safe from this virus. So far, that's going really well for us. The reasons that they still have to present a healthcare setting would include blood tests, uh, ultrasounds, and then some GBS testing or antenatal testing in the third trimester. But we have, we have really minimized it, and that technology has been fantastic for us and our patients. You're just monitoring the, the weight of the patient, the blood pressure. What are the standard monitoring parameters you're following through the telehealth system? So for our program, we have the patient do her own weight, report it to us. We have standard blood pressure cuffs that we have calibrated previously, and we prescribe those to the patient. The more controversial part of our program is that the use of fetal Dopplers at home is not FDA approved, but we do use those off label for the patients to give us a fetal heart rate at home. The alternative to that is some patients either don't have a Doppler or would prefer not to use a Doppler, in which case we do fetal movement assessments at home. And you can also see if they have edema in the feet and things like that. Just if they say, I'm having doc, I'm having some swelling, you can kind of change the monitor or somewhere to just take a look at the feet. It doesn't matter. You know the weight has gone up or something like that. Yeah, we can look at their week to week week change in weight and really their subjective assessment of do they have swelling in their hands, their feet, their face. You know, obviously we, we can look at that on a video monitor as well. We're somewhat limited in assessment of the fundal height in that there's not a good substitute for that via telehealth. And that's sort of our surrogate for, is this baby growing normally? Um, so that's, that's the one area that I would say we're limited if we do only virtual visits. Um, and so we do like to bring them in in the third trimester for, for one in-person physical exam. Dr. Tyler, any parting comments uh, before we thank our audience for listening to your wonderful podcast? Anything which they ought to be doing more at this present moment? You know, the takeaway is there are many unknowns and pregnant women are very anxious, rightfully so, about this disorder. But this infection seems to not be more severe in pregnant women, does not seem to be more frequent in pregnant women compared to the general population. And for now, we need to be very reassuring to our patients and treat them like normal pregnant women and encourage them to socially isolate. Thank you, Dr. Taylor. I learned a lot from you. We've been talking about pregnancy during this difficult time with COVID-19 infection with Dr. Reagan Tyler, chair from the Obstetrics and Gynecology Department of the Mayo Clinic Rochester campus. We will continue to bring you updates on the situation and as events unfold. If you've enjoyed the Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe.